You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're looking together at chapter 17. We're reading chapter 17, verses 16 through 18, and you'll find this on page 926 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 17 and verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, if you are a student of history, at least Greek history, you know that Athens was no common city but it was the leading metropolis of ancient Greece. It is generally considered as the nursery of Western civilization. In Paul's day, it had only the remnants from its former glory of the Golden Age, but it was still somewhat glorious in human terms. It was considered the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. Athens was famous for its statesmen and architects, its philosophers and poets. It had celebrated historians and mathematicians, writers and artists. And the city basically represented the highest level of culture in all of classical antiquity, Athens. Our modern societies have been heavily influenced by Athenian culture, democracy, Greek architecture, epic poetry, writing of histories, the marathon, some of you have run, I think. It originated from a legend of a soldier running from the battlefield to Athens. There were significant discoveries in geometry and astronomy, math and medicine. Some of the students might not be encouraged by that, but they were significant. And the Greeks were the ones who began thinking about the meaning of life. And they called it philosophy. Socrates and Plato came from Athens. Aristotle lived there. The Olympic Games were held every four years near the sanctuary of Zeus at Olympia. And Athens was known the world over for its devotion to the gods and the goddesses of the Pantheon. And the most impressive Athenian buildings were the temples they made to the pagan gods. 
Athens was thus one of the strongholds of heathenism in the ancient world. And it was here in Athens that Paul waited for Timothy and Silas to rejoin him from Berea. And as providence would have it, this was an important stop along the way. The gospel would take root in the greatest cultural center of the empire. And the chapter is going to illustrate that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're going to consider this particular passage under four headings. We're going to consider what Paul saw, what he felt, what he did, and what he said. First of all, we consider what Paul saw in Athens while waiting for his colleagues. It says in verse 16 that he saw that the city was full of idols. Here he was standing in the midst of the greatest center of learning in the ancient world. And not far were some of the most skillful artists and literary geniuses on earth. And yet everywhere he looked, he beheld the objects of pagan worship. Pagan statues and temples and altars, pagan priests and priestesses and sacrifices. One writer said the Athenians surpassed all states in the attention which they paid to the worship of the gods. And this was no backwoods village. This wasn't some backward rural town in the midst of the prairie. Athens, as I said, was the intellectual and cultural center of the entire ancient world. Here were gathered the best and the brightest. And if any place had an educated and cultured population, it was here. And yet for all of their learning and for all of their sophistication, they lived in spiritual darkness. All of their grammar and logic and rhetoric all of their literature and poetry, it was in vain. As we said earlier, it was a little bit like moving the chairs around on the Titanic, right? doesn't matter what chair you occupy up front and the back. The whole thing is sinking. John says the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Athens was a dark place. There was proof of corruption everywhere. And all of their learning and all of their culture couldn't give them assurance in the face of death. Isn't that what we're all looking for? You know, one of my jobs, I'm told, at least in seminary, is to help you die well. That's kind of sobering. The epic poems and classic histories couldn't save them from the final judgment. They had refinement, to be sure, but these were splendid sins, and they were without hope. And as Paul looked around the landscape, he beheld things of beauty, paintings and sculptures and architecture, but at the same time, he saw pagan idolatry, and it was because these people were completely ignorant of the true and living God. There was at least one synagogue nearby, but it was relatively small. And in the eyes of this great pagan city, Jewish worship was insignificant. And the God-fearers must have felt like Lot in the midst of old Sodom. You remember what Peter said? Righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So all the learning in the world 
could not save these sinners from the pit. Those learned and cultured Athenians were heading for destruction, to put it bluntly. And if they died apart from Jesus, they would spend eternity in hell. And I think Athenian idolatry illustrates for us what we humans, the fact that we humans are religious creatures. You can't get away from it. We were made to worship. It's woven into the very human nature of every human being. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 3. He has put eternity in man's heart. It's there. And it explains why every person longs for more than this world has to offer. Each one of us has a longing for the eternal and a longing for God. He's created us for himself with this spiritual cavity that only he can fill. He's put eternity in man's heart. And we were made to enter his eternal rest and to live there forever. So here's the conundrum. Here's the problem. Man needs God, but man utterly hates him. We read this morning, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we've looked at this before. I think the translation is slightly misleading. Because you see, the translators are the ones that put in those two words, there is. They're not there. So what the verse says, no God. The fool knows that there's a God. He does. Paul even says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. The fool says in his heart, no God. No God for me. I will not submit. I refuse to obey. I'm the master of my own fate. So here's the problem. We need God. We know God. But by nature, we hate him. Every human yearns for the fellowship with God, and yet he flees from him. Because the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. And so the depraved heart needs the eternal, but seeks gratification in the temporal. You've experienced that, and so have I. These things don't satisfy. And sadly, the sinner doesn't realize that what he hates is the only thing that will satisfy. We can't exist without God. That's how every one of us is made. So the question is never if we worship. The question is always what we worship. Wherever God is unknown, there the people will worship idols. And that's inevitable because man is inherently a deeply religious creature. Corrupt as it is, human nature must still worship something. And Psalm 15 tells us the tragic story of mankind as a whole. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them, dead. 
So despite all their learning, the Athenians failed to find the truth of God. And so the best trained and most highly skilled people in the world were lost. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? All the painters and poets, all the philosophers and writers, all the builders and architects, all of them were simply moving chairs around on the sinking Titanic. And all of their earthly splendor was fading, decaying, and crumbling away. And it's no different today. Because the majority of mankind is not interested in the gospel. They're caught up in the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All of it's fading. All the prizes that people seek are nothing but trinkets. So that's what Paul saw. But then secondly, we consider what Paul felt as he witnessed this Athenian idolatry. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now that word provoked is the term from which we get the English word paroxysm, convulsion, spasm. Paul's spirit was, in effect, inwardly convulsing. The Athenians were not bothered in the least by these idols. They were common throughout the ancient world. Except Paul's heart was aggravated. His soul was deeply stirred and they were entrenched in their false worship and they needed Christ and Paul knew it. And as he walked those ancient streets, his love for Christ and his zeal for God and his compassion for the multitudes all began to press in on him like a great weight. As Thornwell put it, he was a man of God and the word of the Lord was like a fire in his bones. And so Paul's reaction was not a result of being surprised. He wasn't naive. He understood the world around him and his pagan neighbors. He wasn't some country bumpkin overwhelmed by the big city. Paul was grieved not only over Athenian guilt, but because it was an insult to Yahweh. These were people made in God's image, giving themselves to false gods, and they were spurning the Lord's glorious excellency and his divine majesty for things that are no gods. Think of the feelings that must have erupted within his soul. Zeal for God's honor. Shame for human sin. Pity for Athenian blindness because they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and worst of all, having no hope and without God in the world. And he knew that unless they hear the gospel, they'd perish everlastingly. And he was deeply moved. Is that not how your spirit is provoked when you see American idolatry? I think it is. It's all around us, and at times it's even within us, if we're honest. And what a struggle this is. People blinded by sin and vainly pursuing all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the physical appetites and pleasures. 
the lust of the eyes, which is greed and covetousness, and the pride of life, selfish ambition, the love of the applause of men. These things provoke the Christian spirit and they grieve the believing soul. And let me just say as an aside how despicable it is when prosperity preachers capitalize on that. They portray God as some sort of heavenly vending machine. All you have to do is pray the right prayer and send the right amount and you'll prosper. Where's the cross in all of that? James says, if you meet trials, count it all joy. There's your joy. Affliction. A prosperity preacher says, your your best life is now. The wealth you enjoy is right here. And he's right. That's their best life. And that's sad. You'll have no life beyond the grave because it's gross idolatry and it's worldliness. And our hearts break when we witness these charlatans misleading all kinds of people. And if your hearts break over that like Paul's heart broke over the Athenians, then you have evidence of true grace. The same motives that stirred Paul are those that stir the believer. David says in Psalm 119, my eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he considered their sin and impending destruction. And as we see our culture becoming more dark, our spirits are provoked. But you and I both know that we struggle ourselves to resist such tendencies, don't we? Even after our conversion, you and I wrestle with those sinful, idolatrous inclinations. At least I do. Sad. So Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We plead on our knees for grace. And we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what Paul saw, what he felt, and then what he did. It says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Because you see, it's one thing to see and to feel, and it's another thing entirely to act. Paul didn't just shake his head in disgust and point his finger in disapproval, which is what I'm tempted to do so often. He did something. He pursued a strategy of blood-earnest evangelism. Every Sabbath, he could be found in the synagogue reasoning with these Jews. And every weekday, he was in the marketplace bearing witness to the Gentiles. Because the synagogue was the center of Jewish life and the marketplace was the hub of Athenian life. And just about every day, men would gather in the Agora, the marketplace, to debate the major issues of the day. And you know something? Those Athenians cherished their right of free speech as much as the Americans. They loved to exercise that right. They were constantly and gleefully and robustly discussing in the Agora. And it was there, in that marketplace, 
that Paul found a ready audience for the Christian message. And history tells us that Greek audiences could be extremely impolite, very impolite. If one was unskilled in rhetoric, if you couldn't speak very well, they jeered at him, they mocked him, and were told that they could even be pelted with olive pits and garbage. So you better know how to speak if you speak in the marketplace. And Paul experienced some of this. Verse 18, some says, what does this babbler wish to say? He can't even speak right. Most of the Athenians viewed the apostle with nothing but contempt. But you know something? This didn't matter to Paul. He didn't care. To the Corinthians, he said, we are fools for Christ's sake. He knew that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He endured similar contempt when he preached Christ to Festus. Do you remember? In Acts chapter 26, Governor Festus, hearing him preach Christ, said this, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He was willing to be considered a fool if it meant the salvation of some. So he didn't condemn the Athenians. He didn't just pity them. He evangelized them. He brought the light of the gospel to them and tried to persuade them. He risked his reputation for the eternal welfare of immortal souls. Am I willing to do that? There were those who laughed at him and mocked him and viewed him with scorn. They viewed him as an oddity, to be sure. This eccentric Jew teaching bizarre things, but he persevered out of love for God, zeal for Christ, and the pity of her souls. Because he knew what was at stake. Just like what's at stake this morning. Life and death. We're talking about eternal realities because without Christ, they would go to hell. That's a true doctrine. Hell is not mythical. It's real. And these Athenian sinners, he knew, would endure everlasting punishments if they didn't trust in Christ. So if he could win one soul, it would all be worth it. That's what he did. But then fourth, we consider what he said. We're told that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Luke doesn't give us an exhaustive account of what the apostle was preaching. He just gives us a summary statement that encompasses the whole person and work of Christ. Christ's deity, his incarnation, his obedience, his humiliation, his suffering, and his death. And I'm confident that in his preaching, the cross and its significance for salvation was central, front and center. Christ crucified. He said to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Savior who laid down his life as an offering for sin. Yes, substitutionary sacrifice. He's our substitute. He died for us. He suffered what we deserve to suffer. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the perfectly obedient one. And we're told by Peter that the righteous died for the unrighteous. He died for sins. And Paul says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Isn't that incredible? He died to save us not in our sins, but from our sins. He died for traitors and rebels. And I'm sure that Paul told them about the need for repentance and faith. Perhaps he said to those Athenian listeners that Jesus stands ready and willing to forgive and to accept anybody who would come to him. Maybe he said to them, if a person trusts in this Christ and repents of his sin, his soul will be washed. Maybe he told them that the cleansing blood of Jesus is able to wash away the worst of sins. What is it that we sing? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And as Luke points out, Paul told those Athenians about the resurrection of the dead. He preached the resurrection of Jesus, through whom is the resurrection of the dead. Now, you know something? The Athenians, given all their idols, they had altars erected for mercy, fame, shame, desire. They would take these nebulous concepts and erect idols for them. So when they heard the resurrection of the dead, they thought this guy was proclaiming some weird and peculiar deity. A.T. Robertson says, on this charge, the Athenians voted the hemlock for their greatest citizen, Socrates. So what are they going to do for Paul? He's preaching strange deities. He wasn't preaching strange deities. He was proclaiming the only true and living God, and he must have highlighted Christ as the way and heaven as the end. And of course, he told them about the resurrection, our only hope. Because he said elsewhere that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If that man didn't rise from the tomb, let's go home. But on that third day, the Lord Jesus did rise from the dead by his own power. And in so doing, he declared himself to be the Son of God and to have satisfied divine justice and to have conquered death and him that had the power of it. That's what the resurrection means. And that precursor is a precursor to the consummate event when all in the tombs will hear his voice and everybody will come forth. The believer and the unbeliever alike will rise. The graves will give up their dead and all mankind will be assembled for judgment and every person, great and small, will stand before the great white throne. And each one of us will be judged according to what we have done. And there are really only three ways that those Athenians could have responded to this truth. First, they could have rejected it and considered it mere babble. That was the majority. Second, they could have ignored it, like most Americans, and simply view it as irrelevant. Or third, they could have believed it and trusted in Christ and been spared from judgment. Only three ways to treat it. And that concludes the whole matter. That's the great decision that they had to make. And Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
I'm convinced that Paul told him that. And of course, at the same time, he must have told them about judgment. You can't leave that out. It's on the horizon of history. You can't speak about the resurrection without the final judgment of angels and men. The Lord Jesus refers to this inseparable link in his conversation with the Jews. Do you remember in John chapter 5? Don't marvel at this, he said. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Every one of them. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now that's one of the most sobering texts in scripture. This life is not all there is. The story doesn't stop when we die. Whether we like it or not, we're all going to rise and stand at that bar of judgment. And on that day, there's going to be only two groups. Only one of them will go to heaven. That group will rise to inherit eternal life. And the other group, sadly, will be condemned. Jesus says, before the king will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Two groups. And the only thing, the only thing that will matter is whether or not you're found in Christ. Those who failed and refused to receive him will realize far too late how foolish they've been. They exchanged their immortal souls for the worthless trinkets of this world. And they will long, mark my words, they will long for one month, one week, one day, even one hour more just so they might get right with God, but that opportunity will have perished. It's gone. They will be past salvation. And never again will there be a moment for them to reconsider. That's why Paul reasoned with the Athenians of these things, and that's why he pleaded with them. And some, thankfully, by God's grace, were persuaded and they inherited eternal life. And the rest, tragically, were lost forever. And I just wonder in which one of those two groups you're going to be found at the last day. I wonder. The judgment will be welcomed and celebrated by all of those who believed, but it will bring shame and confusion and condemnation to all who did not. So in this sanctuary, on this Lord's Day, apart from the distractions of the world, we have this wonderful opportunity. And the decision is yours. Matthew 25, 46, it says, The wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's the offer. Free. No strings attached. The misery of the wicked. The blessedness of believers. Both will be forever. So it's up to you. And I pray.
that we all make the right decision. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. As he witnessed in Athens what we tend to witness in America, we see the tragedy of human sin. But we're grateful for the glory of God's grace. And we pray that all of us here would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and accept the terms of salvation so that we can be heirs of eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.